0: Welcome to the Pillow Talk podcast. I'm Will Beck. I'm your host, and today we have M. Locke, the host of Emzotic and an animal educator. M, thanks for coming on.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Yep. So, how'd you sleep last night?
1: Um, so well, thanks to my pillow cube.
0: Uh, yeah. How has the uh, pillow cube helped you out?
1: Um, So I've always had really terrible back pains just due to the fact that I sleep like a ferret in a bagel position and I move around a lot. A bagel position? (laughs) Yes, like a twisted bagel. Okay,
0: (laughs) that's a new one for me.
1: (laughs) Um, And the pillow cube has has really helped me to um, align my spine. And I know it's for side sleepers, which I am. But I actually use it without any difficulties, just laying on my back as well. And it's mm-hmm. the best.
0: Yeah, it's kind of funny because some people, it works super well for them on their back. I'm on my back all the time on it. And then some people are like, oh, I can't even do this. It hurts. You know, I'm like, I don't know. But, you know, when you love it, you love it.
1: And I love it.
0: Yep. Um, what did you think when you got it, when you looked at it the first time? Like, what is this?
1: Well, I was familiar with the shape because I had seen a ton of social media adverts about the pillow cube. Okay. I was just so tempted to touch it. It was a lot like, um, you know, the purple mattress Yeah, and you mm-hmm. see those adverts and I'm just like, I want to touch it. I don't know how it actually feels in real life. And every time I saw a pillow cube, I had that same kind of intrigue. Like, I want to sleep on this. I want to feel how this feels in comparison to my awful, lumpy, old pillow that I hated. And I've just never, ever gone back to normal pillows.
0: So tell me about the old, lumpy pillow. What kind was that?
1: Oh, gosh. I think it was something I bought in Walmart just Uh because I needed another pillow. And within about six months, I was feeling like little golf ball-sized just pockets of fluff in it, (laughs) I started getting these awful neck pains, um, which were so bad that I was like a a robot. I couldn't move my head without moving my entire upper torso. And it was so painful. Um, And I haven't had that since using the pillow cube.
0: Yeah, that's always crazy to me when you hear about like health problems, somebody's back or neck and you're like, how does a pillow solve that? so immediately you know but it does
1: <laughs> it it did for me
0: yeah we've heard that a lot so well i'm i'm pumped that you love you're loving it um can you tell me a little bit about your uh night routine
1: sure uh my night routine is is very loose and flexible um, I just, due to my the nature of my work, can be up until 4 a.m. or I can be in bed at 7.30 p.m. Uh, so for me, not having a routine kind of works, but mm-hmm. the only part of my actual evening routine that stays the same is that I always check my phone one last time before bed, which normally wakes me up more than puts me to sleep. <laughs> And I get my pillow into position and I just snuggle it in there in the nook of my neck. And I, I sort of shimmy my body over onto its side. And I do this thing where I grab some of the the duvet. I think you call it a comforter here in America. <laughs> yeah. I get some of the duvet slash comforter and like bunch it between my knees and then I'm good to sleep.
0: Em, um, we've got something for you.
1: What do you got?
0: We've got a, a knee pillow that I need to send you. I would
1: die of happiness.
0: It would replace your little bunched up comforter. Uh, I have been using it for a few months, but it's got different like slits in it that your legs can kind of fit into. And so you can have your legs like straight in it. You can like bend your legs in a fetal position. You can kind of like twist it sideways in there, but it just gives you, and it has a cooling technology on it too. So, your legs just don't get hot in the night. And that's sometimes where I tend to get hot. And then it just is, they're not touching. So they just don't, it doesn't, there's no pressure. I don't know. It's been a a help for me for sure. So but I think that's what your comforter right. is doing, you know, is trying to keep those legs apart a little.
1: Definitely. Because for me, I feel like my hips slide out of, out of place mm-hmm. if I don't. And so I need something there just to keep my hips aligned as well as my back and my neck and my head up. Um, so that's really like the one last place that I find it sometimes a bit difficult to get into a comfy position to sleep in. So I would be super interested to try your, your knee pillow. Did you say?
0: Yeah. We call it the kneesy.
1: Kneesy, I love it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh, tell me about your hip alignment. Like, is that like, you just feel like you're, Uh, tell me where you feel that pain. Like how does that, how does that manifest for you?
1: Um, So I believe it was from an old injury that I got back when I used to transport snakes from people's like houses back into Mm -hmm. the wild. And I slipped and I fell on some rugged terrain and I never got my hips seen to, but I know that one of my legs is ever so slightly shorter than the other now. Mm. And if I don't sleep on my right-hand side in a specific position in the mornings, I have to kind of do some exercises just to free up my hips a little bit. So I feel like an old lady Um, (laughs) Sleeping on my side with a little bit of a cushion between my knees is super helpful. And when I do that and I don't move around too much during the night, I don't have any pain waking up.
0: Interesting. So when you say that they need to be aligned, like they just, your legs need to be kind of like totally perpendicular, like, and then not like kind of coming in, but just kind of like parallel.
1: Exactly. Um, So if you just imagine these are my knees, they have to be on their side and literally equidistant and perpendicular. And then I'm Uh a happy sleeper.
0: Awesome. I think I used the word perpendicular wrong, and then I think you did too. Oh well,
1: (laughs) parallel, parallel.
0: I think is what we were.
1: Parallel.
0: Yeah. Uh, Perpendicular is when they go like at a cross. (laughs) So
1: definitely not perpendicular. (laughs) Definitely parallel.
0: Oh man, Um, that would have been another interesting sleep position for sure. (laughs) So um, tell me, um, what do your pets think about the Pillow Cube?
1: Oh, my goodness. Okay, so out of the animals that have tried the pillow cube, I used to have a duck, and he loved the pillow cube. He actually belonged to my old roommate at the old place I used to live at. Mm -hmm. So, sadly, he's no longer with me, but he loved the pillow. Just seeing his long neck just go into, like, a Z-shape over the top of areas <laughs> and he loved it and right now the animal that uses my pillow cube the most is my dog Kiba mm-hmm. Um, he's a three-year-old Eurasia and he is a pampered prince he has orthopedic beds cooling mats uh, his own floor fan food subscriptions and I always found that Whenever I would leave the bed, he would shim me into place and he wouldn't want the other side of the bed with the normal, average, basic pillows. No, he wanted my pillow cube pillow and he just lays so regally across it it, and he falls asleep on it. It's the most beautiful thing. He is at peace with the pillow cube.
0: I've seen a lot of dogs use a pillow cube. I've never seen a duck use a pillow cube. (laughs) So I'm sad that we don't have any kind of evidence of that. Um, <laughs> but if, if you ever visit the duck again, you know, I'd love to see that. And I'm glad Kiva's liking it, you know. we It is pretty popular among pets. I don't know why, but we see it a lot. Uh, question for you, just out of curiosity, what, what do you think makes a good dog bed?
1: So out of the actual dog beds I've used, I really enjoy the um the memory foam um however i do find that it sleeps a little bit warm for some double coated breeds Mm -hmm. so maybe having some kind of a memory foam in a lattice shape would be really cool like a hybrid between the two just to encourage a bit more airflow um also something that a dog can really stretch out on I know that a lot of people go for circular beds, almost like a cat bed. Mm -hmm. But in my experience, the dogs that I've had and which I do currently have, they like to spread out. They want all feet just in all different positions, husky style. Yeah. Uh, So having like a nice sort of big rectangular shape might be really cool um, rather than a big circle.
0: One of my million secret projects that I've been thinking about doing is making a dog bed. So I have a prototype that we're working on. Um, But yeah, it's out of pillow cube foam, that kind of thing. And then using some cooling technology on it. So it's like a little bit cooler for the dog to the touch, you know, but.
1: Definitely. And maybe with some kind of easy off cover for cleaning, that would be great. Um, I also think that having, say, a rectangular shape would be really cool. And then with um, the pillow cube almost like able to be attached to the center um, at the top in the middle so that the dogs can lay with their heads on the pillow. So it's like a bed, but with a pillow cube attachment to it. That would be really cool.
0: That is 100% what I'm doing, actually. (laughs) So we're on the same page. Brilliant. Um, So do you use your um, pillow cube for any kind of like non traditional? Uses.
1: Um, I haven't wanted to take it off the bed because I <laughs> yeah. don't want to get dirty, especially with you know all my critters running around and wanting to burrow and steal things. Uh, I mean, my ferrets would swipe it in a second. Um, but I do actually really enjoy um like propping it underneath my chest when I want to lay sort of like belly down and be on my phone on the bed. Yeah, that's been really useful. Um, and then other than that, just, it's the best for my night's sleep. I, I travel quite frequently and I have to take my smaller, um, original pillow cube with me because even the best hotel pillows don't do it for me anymore. I get so disappointed when I go into a hotel and I see these big plush pillows because I know that they look fantastic, but they just don't do it for me. They're just I always- Exactly. <laughs> They're just left there to to their unfulfilled destiny.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a beautiful line. Uh, Tell me about those ferrets. How many ferrets do you have?
1: I have three ferrets called Dobby, Niffler, and Noodle.
0: Ooh, I don't know anything about your ferrets, but I just love the name Dobby. You know, a real hero.
1: Absolutely. Um, And and my Dobby, uh, she's a sock thief. She will. Okay. and steel socks um she is the leader of the pack she has two much bigger little brothers mm-hmm. um, they both weigh about three pounds and she weighs 400 grams uh, and she she kicks their butt She really shows them who's boss and she gets to sleep on her favorite hammocks. She gets the best spots of the bedding and the boys just have to deal with it because she's a queen.
0: So do do your ferrets, they run around all the time or are they kind of in like a, a cage type of situation? How is that?
1: Yep, so they have a two-story enclosure with a tube that connects the top to the bottom so they can like slide and go wee. Mm-hmm. And if I'm down here in my office space, then they're usually running around. Of course, they're not out right now because it would be chaos and <laughs> crashes and toes being bitten and all <laughs> kinds of mayhem. So they're, they're currently sleeping. They sleep for about 18 hours a day.
0: Oh, wow. That's how they have all the energy when they're awake then. Exactly. So uh, tell me how many pets do you have overall?
1: Oh, gosh, um, about 36 or so.
0: Is that ever increasing or is that kind of like a cap?
1: Um, There's space for it to really increase. Um, This is the fewest animals I've had in a really long time. Really? just because I'm focusing on specific breeding projects, Um, but in the past, I've had up to 200 at a time. Oh
0: my goodness. So (laughs) with 200 pets, do you have names for all of them?
1: Every single one has a name, a QR code, a feeding sheet, medical records, and designated playtime.
0: So is that a full-time job to just have pets?
1: yeah, I would say it's sometimes a two-man full-time job. um but I, I find a way in between my YouTube work, which is all to do with pet care mm-hmm. and along with my other work, which is I call my my day work, uh, working for uh, an enclosure company um and helping them to develop their products and brand strategy, um which is great because I enjoy that. That's my thing. And the animals benefit from having wonderful, spacious homes.
0: Mm-hmm. so your day job, is that a A full-time gig is that you're working 40 hours a week
1: yes i do 40 hours a week for another company and then i have two other companies of my own which i also pretty much work an additional 40 hours a week each um i know the math doesn't seem to add up but it does it works (laughs) i I say sometimes i go to bed at 4 a.m sometimes 7 p.m when i can go no longer
0: So tell us about these other companies that you own. Like, what are you doing? What are kind of your projects there?
1: So uh, my first and foremost, I am the CEO and founder of Emzotic, which is a digital animal education company. I create digital videos for people to access, which teaches them all about how to care for exotic pets because exotic pets are very popular, but they're also very difficult to look after. Um, And with that comes sponsorship deals, interviews. Um, I wrote a book as well, which became a number one bestseller, all about the relationships between humans and animals. Um, And I also like to travel around and meet as many of my following as I can, also known as the Creature Crew. Mm -hmm. So that's exotic. I also breed on the side crested geckos under the name raucous reptiles. So that's also a lot of fun. I'm very passionate about my crested geckos.
0: So I don't know anything about geckos, but maybe you can kind of fill me in like what what is a crested gecko? And you know, from a breeding standpoint, what are you doing that's kind of unique or special about?
1: So, crested geckos um, are a really beautiful gecko that have these huge fleshy eyelashes mm-hmm. and these big floppy crests on the side of their head. If you look at their head from the top, it almost looks like a stingray. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really interesting. And there's a huge following for them because their genetic potential is almost unlimited. Um, in the reptile hobby, we have something called morphs, uh, which is the physical. Um, And sometimes, um, uh, sometimes hidden traits as well that these animals can possess and pass on to their offspring. Um, Some of these animals in a Petco or a PetSmart might only set you back 60 to 90 dollars. But the animals that I'm breeding, we're looking at like five to ten thousand dollars wow! um, because they are so incredible. Um, um, This is one of my first years breeding, so I'm still growing out my foundation stock, but I have a couple of animals from really incredible lineage that are very popular. And there's always a huge demand for animals from this lineage. Um, and hopefully down the line, they will be hopefully funding my house deposit. <laughs> yeah.
0: So tell me about, uh, these geckos lineage. Like what is it about their lineage that makes them special? Is it certain like physical characteristics that they have in terms of a look or is it behavior?
1: Yeah. So it's all to do with how they look. Um, it's all to do with nice structure, big heads, nice, big, bright eyes, thick tails, Um, nice stocky bodies, um, really vibrant colours. I mean, crested geckos come with spots called Dalmatians. They can also be... Completely um, devoid of any red colors, also known as isanthics, um, they can be really striking contrast, also known as lily whites. Um, so it really does depend on what your preference is when you look at these animals. But they can live up to about fifteen years when cared for properly. Um, so there's a lot of potential to develop different colors different patterns different combinations Um, and it's it sounds very cold and clinical when listening to it from the outside but people care so deeply about these animals and they track grandparents -grandparents, great-grandparents great-great-grandparents and the people who breed these animals stay in touch they collaborate they want to improve the overall health and structure of the animal um, and they make for very very healthy animals too
0: so When you are breeding, did you buy an initial like female gecko and then you like rent out a male gecko or do you buy both or how does that process?
1: So you can do either. Um, my preference is to own everything that I produce from. Yeah. So I have adult males and adult females, and I plan before the season begins which males and females based on their genetics would be best together. Uh, but there are people who collaborate on breeding projects as well where they will ship their reptile across the United States overnight and allow their female to go and pair up with a male that lives over on the East coast or over on wow. the West. Coast. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge following for it.
0: And that would be a, sometimes I'd be a bit nervous to ship such a valuable animal.
1: <laughs> yes. It has to be done very carefully through a certain company as well as with insurance. And they will only ship, um, if it's going to be delivered within 24 hours and if it's between certain temperatures. Um, They are a temperature-sensitive animal, so you don't want to overcook them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Otherwise, you can have, unfortunately, fatalities. But I've never encountered that because I've always gone the route of uh, erring on the side of caution. And sometimes that means if I've purchased a gecko from someone in Florida, if it's too hot to ship um, from the spring through the summer, I'll wait till the autumn or winter knowing that they'll hold to their word and send me the animal eventually. And mm-hmm. they always, do, you know, there's, there's a lot of trust in me, in the community.
0: So how many geckos do you have?
1: I have 22 geckos right now.
0: Okay. So that's the majority of your um, animals. Do you, can you look at them all and say, Hey, that one is that person. And that one's that not person, but <laughs> that name, you know, like, do you know them? Do you feel like, you know, their personality or.
1: I do. They all have personalities. They all have preferences for what they do and do not like to eat. Some of them are really happy to be handled and to hang out on my shoulder or on my head while I do my paperwork. And others would rather just hide and eat in secret. So I do know every single one by sight, by name. I track their weights twice a month. And I also know um, whose baby is from who. Mm -hmm. And uh, once the females start producing, they can lay up to about 12 good eggs in a season. So uh, there's always plenty of space I have available for babies. Because, uh, you know, when when you have, say, six breed of females each chanting out 12 babies a year, that's, that's quite a lot of geckos that you can no, have. No, that's
0: a lot of geckos. Do you manage to, I mean, have you gone through a season yet where you've had to sell all those or is this kind of your first upcoming
1: um, this is my first upcoming season and I've only bred two of my females just so that I can have a very manageable amount, you know, 24 babies, no problem. Mm-hmm. But there are some people out there who come out with, uh, literally thousands of babies because they'll have over 300 breed of females and some people wow. breed commercially for the large chain pet stores. Mm-hmm.
0: And so for you, is it hard to find people that want to spend 5,000 or $10,000 on a gecko?
1: No, <laughs> no. <Really? laughs> I'm very specific about the geckos that I choose to breed based on the demand I know is already there. Mm -hmm. If you're breeding entry-level geckos, then it's going to take you a season or two to shift those babies into good homes. Um, And good homes are important. You don't just Mm -hmm. want to drop them off on whoever will buy them for the cheapest. Uh, But uh, you know, even five grand is not particularly a lot for one of these geckos. Some of them can range all the way to 20 or even 40 grand.
0: So when did you develop your passion for animals?
1: I actually grew up in Asia. And uh, every day I was catching all kinds of animals. I don't know if you can see behind me, but there are Chinese water dragons in that mm-hmm. enclosure. I used to bring home all kinds of lizards and snakes in my pockets. And my mom used to have absolute heart attacks every day with the animals that I brought home with me as, as pets for the day or pets for the evening. To the point that she actually sewed up my pockets and <gasps> refused to buy me any. Clothes with pockets, and I wasn't allowed to take a bag out with me. I got pat down every single time I used to come home. Um, I remember she once found a rat, a baby rat in my hair that I was trying to smuggle back into the house. <laughs> that, that's, that's why I go by M these days and not Emma, because I just have awful memories of my mom shouting, Emma, what have you done now? Um, every time I'd come home. So no, I'm just M unless I'm in trouble. Uh, but the, uh, whilst I've changed my name slightly, the love for animals has stayed exactly the same
0: what part of Asia did you grow up in
1: uh, predominantly in Hong Kong but we would move around and I spent a lot of time in Thailand uh, the Philippines uh, just all over really
0: so were you working with primarily or like when you were as a kid I mean were these primary, primarily exotic animals at that point
1: Uh, Yes and no. Everything I did outside of my school and regular work hours was was reptiles and exotics. But I actually when I was 10, got my first job in a pet store. Mm -hmm. And that was um, to help me learn more about dogs. I had severe fur allergies growing up. And Mm. my parents hated it when I'd come home from playing at Friends' houses with their dogs, just with huge puffy eyes and wheezing and unable to breathe. Um, and I just decided to take it upon myself to find a job where I could do a lot of exposure therapy. And I'm mm-hmm. no longer allergic to any animals with fur anymore. So that really worked. Um, and it also led me on to my next job, which was working for the Hong Kong RSPCA. It's just called the SPCA now. But my job was going out into the mountains, trapping dogs and puppies that were feral, bringing them in them and even just at the age of 10 communicating with people which dog would be the best fit for their family
0: mm-hmm. that's cool so my daughter she loves animals Aww. loves them loves them loves them and just like you she has like the worst allergy she even if it's a hypoallergenic dog she goes and mm-hmm. pets it she's like puffy coughing has a hard time breathing you know like oh what are you doing stop touching animals and she can't help herself.
1: (laughs) I I feel that I completely relate. I would rather take the puppy eyes and the swelling and the itching and the sneezing and the coughing over not being able to pet the puppy. I want to pet all the puppies.
0: (laughs) So uh, do you have animals that you like certain types of animals that you feel like you can get like closer to emotionally than others?
1: yes um so with my reptiles i'm very realistic and whilst they're extremely intelligent far more intelligent than people truly give them credit for and they can recognize people um they they do tolerate handling for the most part mm-hmm. i wouldn't say they necessarily crave it whereas my my rats, my ferrets, my dogs absolutely crave the attention and they, they love interacting with humans and they can't get enough of it.
0: Uh, how many rats do you have?
1: I have three rats.
0: So what are those like as pets? Because the rats kind of have like a bad reputation, you know, where it's like, oh, it's just like mean, they'll bite you, gross, whatever, you know what I mean? Like for in terms of your rats, like, are they very friendly? Like, what is that like?
1: Funnily enough, I have two rats which are a little bit skittish. They are not aggressive, but they I don't think that they were bred with temperament in mind. They're very beautiful. Mm-hmm but not particularly friendly they are happy to climb on me and hang out but they're they're happier just being brothers and hanging out with other rats then my other rat is actually a rescue from a reptile store where he was being raised as a meat rat for snakes Um, and I actually had to do an assignment. It's a secret assignment I can't say too much about, but I needed a rat to do some research on and not medical or anything like that, just more Mm -hmm. to do with their behavior and how they move. Um, And I ended up falling in love with this meat rat and keeping him and he is super snuggly, super friendly. And you would think it would be the other way around that the rat that was raised in the dark with hundreds of other rats, never having human contact, contact you'd think that that would be the one that'd be more skittish but actually the two that were raised in a breeder home were actually the more skittish and they're great pets uh, if you handle them from when they're young and you take the time to train them and bond with them they're honestly just like little dogs They're very clean if you keep on top of their enclosures they don't smell um, and you can get them to do tricks and they love to hang out with people they, they bond very closely with their humans.
0: Have you ever thought about naming a rat Scabbers?
1: I have actually worked with a rat called Scabbers, and he was a giant Gambian pouched rat. I think he probably weighed about 12 pounds and he had been... In my care because I was helping to train them to detect landmines, um, so that they could be sent abroad to Africa to sniff out landmines. They are smart enough to be able to do this work to help clear fields of landmines, but not heavy enough to set off a landmine. So, uh, I the one that I trained was called Scabbers, and he was fantastic.
0: So they use these rats. They they take them and then they just go sniff out a landmine and then they find where it's at and then somebody can deactivate it and dig around it?
1: Exactly. So you start by teaching the rat to detect minute amounts of uh, uh, explosives. And once they get the hang of that, you teach them to indicate. And for me, indicating was standing up on their back feet, Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, rats will sometimes do, but it's not the most natural position for a Gambian pouched rat. We're talking about a rat the size of a cat here, a big, big cat, so, um, you know, I taught them how to indicate and then after I taught them the basics they would go to somebody else who would get more uh, in depth with their training and um, eventually take them over to Africa. Um, I believe it was in was it Kenya, it might have been in. Um, and then they would uh, be paired with a handler and then they would learn to work with that handler and clear fields of landmines.
0: You'd have to have a lot of trust in that rat if you were a handler <laughs> like
1: absolutely
0: yeah, that's pretty remarkable uh use there that's crazy um I imagine these pets are very expensive, you know there's a lot of cost, whether it's like food medical whatever like how do you manage all that
1: um I just They they come first. Um, If if I want something fun like a vacation, I have to work extra hard for it because these animals are expensive. But I'm also a businesswoman at the end of the day and I never exceed what I know I can very comfortably look after. Um, I would say that after food, vet's bills are the largest expenditure I have. Um, I also have a helper who comes in, you know, once every week or so um, just so that I can dedicate more time to my work. And she can do all of the maintenance work, you know, the cleaning, the feeding, checking the animals for any kinds of signs of illness, medication, things like that. So I like to find local people who are really interested in animals and I, I train them up a bit. And then the great thing is, is I can go away on holiday if I want to, um, after paying all of their bills and, um, and I'm able to know that they're in good hands.
0: So what does your home look like? Does it look almost like a pet store?
1: Um, when you walk in the main areas of the house are very normal looking you Mm -hmm. don't smell anything you don't hear anything if you didn't know that down here in the finished basement I had essentially a small zoo you would never know (laughs) down here where I work from this is sort of my exotic HQ um, there are just wall-to-wall Beautiful, big, spacious enclosures for my reptiles. There's also a big playpen for my rats. They go in there in the evenings to get additional playtime. Um, and then behind my computer, it's wall to wall more enclosures of, of geckos.
0: Yeah. So it's, I mean, I imagine it's beautiful to be there and just see all these animals all the time. And the enclosures look fantastic. It's not like a cheap plastic <laughs> box, you know?
1: Oh, no. And that is a harsh reality, unfortunately, of some keepers is that people like to use things called breeding racks, which is essentially almost like shoeboxes stacked one on top of the other. Uh, That's not That's not my preference. I believe Mm -hmm. that you have far healthier, happier animals when they have space to demonstrate their their natural abilities. Um, that for me is very important. Um, I actually spent some time when I lived in the UK helping to change the laws surrounding um, captive exotics. And now we have minimum space requirements as well as travel requirements when traveling with exotic pets because things are getting a little bit... uh, Falling standards, I suppose I could say, and I just didn't like it. So we banded together and we pushed for greater, um, greater standards when it came to exotics. They they sort of get forgotten, you know. Everybody's for horse rights and dog rights, uh, cattle, but nobody really thinks about the the snake stuck in a shoebox.
0: Yeah, so I imagine there's probably a lot of people who get those out of like some kind of interest in exotics. But then don't have the tools to take care of them or maybe lose interest in them. Like, is that a major problem in the US? And kind of what are what are people doing to work with that?
1: I wouldn't say it's um it's uh, because people get into the hobby and they don't have enough money for big enclosures. It's more a lot of people come into it. Like there's two kinds of people who keep: there are hobbyists and there are breeders. Mm-hmm. And the hobbyists are the people who have the enclosures, for example. What I have behind me over here, you know, lovely big enclosures, food, water, lighting, heating, lots of space and foliage to climb on um, and and things for enrichment. You know, you, you give them enrichment and then there are some breeders, their first thought can often be profit. And if you can keep a lot of animals in very small spaces and keep more of them and breed more of them, then you're going to turn them over profit. Um, and it's, it's seen as, as a, a, it's a business for a lot of people and they're very detached from it. Um, that's been very typical within the community for a long, long time. And I do believe standards are changing now. That's part of the work that I do over on exotic, because I try and show people the benefit of providing larger enclosures. I always say two things. If you can't afford a vet, don't get the pet. And um, if you have to ask yourself, what is the minimum space requirement for this animal? You shouldn't be keeping it. You should be asking, what is the maximum that I can offer an animal? Mm -hmm. And then scale down to a smaller species that you can give a lot more space to. Um, That's just what I believe in. And uh, it, it works out great for my animals. I could fit right behind me hundreds of snakes if I wanted to, but instead I have two. Um, And I have plenty of space. And I know that once those two reach breeding age, they'll be producing far better and far better quality offspring that I can be proud of when, you know, placing in a new home, as opposed to me feeling like I'm keeping animals in a box just for profit. And that doesn't sit well with me.
0: Yeah. So I had a question. Um, How do you deal with loss. I imagine if you have 30 something pets right now and you've had hundreds before, like you're having pets pass away regularly. I uh, had a dog named Duke when I was a kid and my siblings would probably listen to this podcast and start crying immediately, but we loved our dog so much. And then just one day Duke didn't wake up and it was like, we only had Duke for like nine years. We're like, Oh, this dog's supposed to last forever, you know? And we were just brokenhearted about it. For a long time. And I've I know so many people who have that story about their their pet where they're just so crushed emotionally when they pass away. Like for you, I mean, how do you deal with that when you have that many pets?
1: So I I do have my dog keeper. He is my baby. He's three years old, and I've never had to say goodbye to a dog before. Uh-huh. I really think I will be a mess when that day eventually comes. The closest I've had to a real breakdown over an animal passing away was were well, two animals. My first ferret bear, who was a rescue and an ex-hunting ferret, mm-hmm. and a, a red-billed hornbill that I rescued in New Jersey called Grinchy. And with Grinchy, he was a struggle. He was an animal that had been trafficked from the wild from Africa. Uh, he, when you go from Africa. The, the, the vast plains of Africa to an aviary in New Jersey. It's not a good thing. He did learn to trust me. He did acclimate somewhat, but the climate wasn't right. And after two years of really struggling with his respiratory infections, I tried to find him a home down in Florida. But before I could finalize his new home, he sadly passed away because captivity was too much of a toll on him. Um, That was really heartbreaking because a lot of people loved him, followed his journey. And I felt like I was grieving for over 700,000 people and not just myself, um, because that's how many people really loved him and followed him. Um, And then with regards to other animals I have here, losses sometimes happen. I just recently lost a 16-year-old royal python that I moved to the U.S. with called Car. She was very special to me. She actually got lost in transit from the U.K. (laughs) to the U.S.A. due to a hurricane. But she surfaced two weeks later and was completely fine. Thank goodness. Yeah testament to how hardy reptiles can be Um, but a lot of the other animals that I have here I adopt them and go into their care with very um, with with, with a lot of logic and a lot of understanding that the animals that I bring home are often not In the best condition. I am a sucker for animals that would otherwise be euthanized. I am Mm -hmm. a sucker for animals that have had a difficult start. So I know realistically that they probably won't live as great of a lifespan as a healthy counterpart. And this is certainly true for ferrets. There's only one big breeder of ferrets in the United States. And they supply all the big chain pet stores they're notorious for inbreeding and the animals that they produce they live only a couple of years when they should be living a lot more so mm-hmm. every time i get a ferret i know this animal is probably not going to live past 5 or 6 mm-hmm. um but you know my two five and six year olds are hanging in there with their cataracts and their poor genetics, but they're they're still going strong.
0: (laughs) So do they have ferrets that have good genetics or have they just kind of flooded the market to the point where they're, you can't even get a a good ferret
1: in other parts of the world. You can have ferrets with decent genetics. Unfortunately they are a lot like the rat where they succumb to various lymphomas and cancers later in life. However, the the rate at which they decline in health in the United States is far worse than anywhere else on the planet. Um, there's one main breeder. They outcompete everybody and any competitors, they tend to shut down pretty quickly. When you buy the ferrets, you have a health guarantee only if you feed that breeder's food. Mm. So it's def- and that food is not good for ferrets. it it It's very well known that it causes a lot of problems in these animals. So essentially, you're set up for failure with the stock here in the United States. Um, but what that breeder does have going for them is that they do breed for, Temperament, So they're the funniest and the sweetest ferrets in the world, but mm-hmm. they're also the ones with the poorest genetics, unfortunately, whereas all the other ferrets that I've kept as hunting stock, because I used to actually hunt with them in the UK, mm-hmm. um, I would take them and uh, flush out rabbits from farmer's fields. So mm-hmm. they were working stock, big, muscular animals. They would live up until they were 10 years old, some of them, instead of five or six. Um, but they certainly would not hesitate to take a chunk out of your finger either.
0: <laughs> <laughs> not a great, uh, play thing.
1: <laughs> no, um, I, I didn't mind it so much. I, I quite like my spicy animals.
0: Yeah, that's fun. So how long have you been, you know, building an audience and doing animal education?
1: Um, I've been building an audience now for about five years or perhaps actually coming up on six this autumn. Um, and it, it's going all right.
0: No, I would say, you know, 700,000 uh, people following what you're doing and being invested in your journey is pretty incredible.
1: Thank you. I I uploaded a couple of videos just being myself, and people liked that. So I'm forever grateful.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Um, what were your goals as a child when you were really into animals? Were you like, hey, when I grow up, I want to be what? <sighs>
1: I wanted to have a house full of animals and I did it. I you had my
0: teacher,
1: <laughs> my teacher said, Em, you will never make money being a, a pet mother. And I proved them wrong. That's <laughs> yeah, essentially what I am. <laughs> I'm paid to have this amazing pet life. And so, haha, to my fourth grade teacher. Um, but <laughs> I, I really wanted to just live and work around and experience animals. Uh, for a long time, people said, so you're going to be a vet or a zookeeper or a, a pet store owner. And lo and behold, I, I didn't want to be a vet. And I actually ended up working in a pet store, which I hated. And I became a zookeeper, which I didn't enjoy because as much as you love animals as a zookeeper, then are not yours. And the budget is what ultimately dictates the level of care you can afford to give to an animal. Mm-hmm. So I just said, no thanks. And I wanted to have more control over my animals and their health and their well Um So now really what I'm mostly interested in is the pet industry. I like to develop pet products. I love encouraging people to seek a higher standard of welfare for their animals at home. And I love to celebrate the human animal bond.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh uh, what was the name of the book that you wrote about uh the human and animal bond?
1: Oh sure, yes, it's called Animal Kind.
0: Okay, Animal Kind. So uh in that book, like what did you explore? Like what are your thoughts on what makes animals such an important part of like you know, being happy and just kind of feeling something different in life?
1: Well there's there's really nothing like a human-animal bond. You can't replicate it between humans or really anything else. It, 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 I guess some might say plants you could to an extent because it's another living organism but animals show you how they feel and they adapt to us and they react to us in ways that say plants cannot. Mm-hmm. Um, and and for me what I loved about this book was that I interviewed real people and their true life stories about how animals have impacted their lives. And then I, I wrote them into these chapters. And each chapter is a different story. It's a lot like the chicken soup books, you know, chicken mm-hmm. soup books like lots of short stories. Um, And I also put in my own uh, story called Bear, which was the story of my first uh, hunting ferret. Yeah, exactly. So it was was a very special book and it really touched a lot of people. You know, it, it touches on mental health and how animals can help with that. It touches on how animals are just around us during the most difficult parts of our lives and how they have a profound impact without having to say anything at all.
0: Yeah, one of the uh, people that we had on the uh, podcast a, f- uh, a few months ago, he's a UFC fighter, but he has an Alaskan-sized bed, which is like nine feet by nine feet or something like that. Wow. And the reason he got such a big bed is because he wanted his dogs to sleep with him. He's got like two big like Alaskans or something. And
1: <laughs> Wow. Um, if it's Malamutes that he has, Alaskan Malamutes, those are big dogs. <laughs> yeah,
0: no. And he's like, hey, I needed a huge bed so that they could be in my... <laughs> Be in my Aww. bed with me. so, um, Awesome. Well, it's been really delightful to kind of learn you know, from you about a lot of the relationship with your pets and kind of what you're doing and the stuff with geckos. I mean, I don't know. It's very unique. There's not a lot of people who have a dream where they're just like, hey, I want to do this. And they actually go do it. And it's totally different from the norm. So congratulations for making that a reality.
1: Thank so, you. I'm um, just... Being me and doing life. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, that's a good thing. Sometimes it's hard for people to be themselves. They feel like they have to be what the world wants them to be instead of just what feels right to them, you know?
1: I agree. I've often told people, a lot of people would be more comfortable looking at me in a different kind of setting. You know, if I were a secretary or something else or doing a different kind of job, a lot of people get really disgusted when they see... That I've shown people how a leech feeds off of my own body, or mm-hmm. that I'm showing people how great certain species of cockroaches can be as pets. It, there's something weird about a woman showing that off on camera that puts a lot of people on edge. But as I've said many times, I could no sooner walk on water than change who I am. And if if there is a god, then this is my gift, and I'm here to share it.
0: Yeah, well, you're doing a great job. It's been great to get to know you a little bit better. Thanks for uh, you know enjoying your Pillow Cube and, and telling us more about it and uh, you know your kneesy is going to be on the way so uh, appreciate the time.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
0: Yep.